Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome into the StoryCraft Cafe. Boy, do we have a great show for you today. We've been running this challenge, the Rewrite a Novel with Dabble in 60 Days Challenge, which is, you know, the, the next extension from our Write a Novel with Dabble Challenge back in the fall. Now we're taking that, that piece of work that we've created and we're taking an objective look at each piece of it and figuring out how to whip this thing into shape so that we have a a real actual book at the end of it. So the, the first couple of weeks of the challenge, we've been talking about characters. And uh, last week we talked about the your your main character, your protagonist. Today in, in this show, we're going to break down the rest of your cast of characters, your supporting characters, and what they bring to the story and how to you know take an objective look to see if they're doing what they need to do for the story i hope you enjoy this show i hope you enjoy the the back and forth with our panel and join us uh thursday at noon eastern time and we're going to dissect plot hope you'll join us then at storycraft.cafe you can find all the information that you need now on to our show And we are live in the Storycraft Cafe today. We are uh, talking again about our rewrite, uh, a book with Dabble Challenge that's going on. And last week we had a great conversation about characters and we really focused mainly on our protagonist. And uh, Josh is frozen. You can unfreeze now, Josh. Oh, thanks. My connection was kind of wonky there. It's like the end of every episode in the Naked Gun series back in the 80s. You know? <laughs> yeah. I was waiting for my dog to like walk <laughs> yeah. past. I was trying to stay still, man. My arms are shaking. <laughs> Wise guys, the whole bunch of you. Last week we we were talking about characters and we really kind of focused on protagonist and the the characters that our stories are mainly about and I thought it would be fun today if we um, had a discussion about the other characters in our books the side characters if you want to or protagonists um, yeah well <laughs> and sometimes they're antagonists but not always sometimes they bring things to the story that um add texture and depth and you know allow the writer to bring things to the story without necessarily having the protagonist do everything and just become a mary sue um so first off um do, do you guys have a side character uh that you have written that you didn't intend to to be the star of the show if you will but that you really connected with and um, you you wound up having a lot of affection for the side character for, for whatever reason. Have you guys ever written a character like that? Uh, several. Yeah. 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 Um, I think, I think throughout the Barry goddess saga, there were a lot of characters that were introduced um, really just as a, an, you know, in fantasy, you name a lot of characters, right? I think we had something like 325 named characters in that series. And, That's a lot. Uh, and so, you know, throughout time, you, you find, uh, you find yourself looking for a character to insert into a scene and you're like, well, I already named this character in, you know, book two, chapter four, and he fits the need for this, right? So you kind of bring him back and there was a character called Sir Nixeroff. Um, who uh, I'll give you a little bit of a, a history here. Um, Did you say Sir Mix a lot? Nope, Sir. <laughs> Mix -a -lot. Right. <laughs> was the name of a, a good friend's D and D character. I helped create this character, and his backstory was that he was a warrior 
who cut off the foreskins of and Nick's rock is foreskin backwards. Um, nice. So this nice. series went on for several years. Did you years. really just play Mr. Mixelplick? In... What? what? No, nothing. Super, Superman, hard. Mr. Mixelplick. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Um, so this, this story went on for, for years, Barry Goddess Saga, and I got one email from a reader one time asking me if I knew that Nixeroff was foreskin backwards. <laughs> Did you know that, Steve? And I said, no, you're kidding. And that was my whole email. Nice. <laughs> nice. So, yes, Nixeroff became a, a wild card throughout the series by book six. Um, he was, I believe, sort of beloved um, and hated at the same time. But he was one that I would consider uh, just somebody who was thrown in there as a joke. Sir Nixeroff, stupidest name ever. Um, but he became something valuable. Sounds, sounds too Russian. Yeah. So speaking of, of a cast of characters. Most, that big, most, English, have... most English said backwards, by the way, sounds like pseudo-Russian. So yeah, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, that that's a tip right there from Rick. Just spell a character backwards if you need to add some flair. Um, Steve, when you've got a cast of characters that's three hundred some odd named characters, how do you track that? How do you manage? Well, and and, and how how do you <laughs> how do you keep up with characters so you don't forget who they are and where they are? And you know, if you send someone off on on a mission, how do you how do you keep all that I, I think track. any fantasy author will tell you um, that they've made mistakes with their characters um, I, that's probably true of space opera that's probably true of a lot of, of genres but for me yeah. personally it took me four books we were um, about 600,000 words into this series when I realized we needed a world bible uh, and that was because I wrote an entire arc of this story with a character that we killed already um nice so it, it just popped up in my head this like I, I feel like i was you know i i think a lot in the shower and um yeah. that's my only time when there's total silence in my house right so in the shower and i remembered i had this memory of killing this character just nonchalantly killing him and i went back into like i think book two and i went oh my god this guy's dead and i just spent 40,000 words developing this story about this character. Um, so that was when I stopped writing and I developed the, the world Bible where I have, um, I have a Google Docs sheet that has the name of every named character and there's an X by him if they're dead. Um, it's worse than that. He's dead, Jim. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard. If you don't have a detailed world Bible, I've done that now for every series that we've written. Uh, except for the black badge, um, uh, because that one's pretty simple to keep track of in our heads. Yeah. But if it's Steve, the I, I need you, I need you to to make a world bible for uh, all the whole Drop Trooper universe for me. No. <laughs> but, but there are people you can pay for that. There's several, right? Like I know that Galaxy's Edge uses somebody who um, they paid to go through and and read every book and and keep a world bible. And like I'm sure some of them are absurdly expensive, but like find a good proofer who um, is willing to, you know, for a little extra money, proof your book for typos. And then also every time they come across a named character, named city, named weapon, named ship, named planet, whatever it is, write it down in the world Bible. If there's a description of that character, do yourself a favor and have another column where you describe the character. They're blonde. There's a scar on their left eye, right? That way you're not writing that it's the scar on the right eye for two books. Um, I do that while I write. I have a, I have a document. Well, in Dabble, I have a, a whole section of characters and every, most of the time my characters don't have names in the first draft. So I don't worry about it. Um, but, in the second draft, when I go back in and add all that stuff in, I'll when I come to the name, I'll add it to the character document, and then I'll just copy and paste the initial description, and copy that right under the name. And so, if that cover character ever comes back up again, uh, and I usually have like I'll put in parentheses book one, this scene, this is what they were doing. 
Um, and so if I want to change like what they're wearing or whatever, I can still maintain like character continuity with all the stuff that matters. Um, and then if I ever put them back in a book and something has changed about them, I'll add that in as well and go book two, whatever else. It's funny that you bring up the book one, the book two thing, because I actually just formatted a book. Um, for those listening, I don't just write. I also own Athon Books, and so I'm, I do most of the formatting. And he's the president um, of the hair club, too. President of the hair club. <laughs> uh, Josh actually helps with the formatting, so um, that's kind of the tie there. But, um, well, I mean, we're really good friends, too, but re regardless. So I'm formatting this book the other day, and uh, I get to the end, and the author has his cast of characters, which is clearly just his world Bible copied over into his manuscript. Just okay. tacked onto the end. As I'm looking through it, and I don't read through everything that I format. For some reason, as I'm going through this formatting, and something stuck out to me, and it was, I'm formatting book one, and he's got information about what this character does in book two, <laughs> in the cast of characters for book one. And I'm like, spoilers! Holy crap! Don't you can't just copy and paste verbatim the things that you're. <laughs> Right. I went through that cast of characters. I deleted every reference to like what book is this, they're in. Is this lit RPG? This is not lit RPG. This is military sci-fi. Really? Um, and and he's a cast of characters in, in military sci-fi. Yeah, really he's nice. a great, great author. Um, so there's no no shade thrown at him. But when I saw that, I'm like, man, we got to be careful what we're putting in there because although we're the publisher, uh, it's not always. It's not really our responsibility to make sure that what goes into your book is what you want in your book we didn't write it right you know we don't know exactly there's so many things we come across that we go i don't i don't know uh and <laughs> right and because it's such a fast-paced publisher, we don't always have the opportunity to go back to the author and wait a month for them to return an email yeah a lot of times it's just been like we'll be on the phone looking at the same thing going yeah okay let's just let's i think this is what they were trying to do let's do that so that's just an, an, a bit of info, a bit of um, advice for authors. Like, make sure what you either give to your publisher or format in your book is actually what you want readers to see. Because that would have sucked if a reader read that cast of characters and like, oh, shit, that guy dies in book two. Cool. I don't care right. about him anymore. Hmm. Oh, yep. That's that's rough. Josh, you, you ever had a, I didn't have you ever had a... I swear. Oh, I'm... Oh, that's, have you ever had a side character that that became more than you envisioned in the beginning? Um, yes. Uh, in uh, my Tranquility series, I have a character um, who's she in the first book, she gets like a, a kind of a brief cameo as one of. The, so Tranquility is kind of a, a uh, blend of Starcraft and Titanfall. And uh, the Starcraft elements are the the aliens operate as as like a a, a pseudo telepathic connected hive mind, and um, they're controlled by hierarchies of order in, in inside the hive. And so there's some higher level ones and some lower level ones. And this woman was uh, kind of absorbed into the hive, and she operated as one of kind of like a lieutenant, if you would. Like that's was her rank. It's it, that's not what they called it, but that was you know, for comparison. Um, and she had a small part in the first book where she was attacking some of the main characters. Um, and when I got to the second book, um, realized that she would be a cool addition, um, to the cast, but also, um, create a lot of conflict because she was, she had been the enemy in the first book. Um, and so, as I developed her character and thought about where I wanted to take her across the, the trilogy, um, she became, uh, in Starcraft, there is a, a woman who becomes a Zerg, basically queen. Um, and she, she takes over a, a significant population of this alien race called the Zerg and becomes like an antagonist for the human characters. And I didn't want her to, I didn't want this character gray to go in that direction, but I wanted to grow her into this like post human type character where she was both human and alien at the same time. Yeah. Um, the, the series didn't progress that way. Like it, it had to end at book three, um, but 
<coughs> I, if I could have taken it further, I would have loved for her to have like a bigger, like more encompassing arc and make her like one of these significant main characters. She does have a big part in book three and, and, and that element of her, the, the, the alien aspect does come into play in a very important way in book three. Um, but if it had, if, if it could have gone longer, I would have loved to see her go in much farther in that direction and explore that kind of thing. And that like those type of secondary characters are almost more fun to write than the main characters, because you can do, you can do so much more. I say outlandish, but I don't mean that outlandish yeah. things with secondary characters than you can with main characters sometimes. And a lot of times they're more, um, more fun to create and write that way. Rick, with a with a book series as long as Drop Trooper, do you find um, secondary characters that you have created that then spin off to their new to their own storylines or are on, uh, you know, sub series in the within the same series? Um, not Drop Trooper per se, but yeah. uh, in the whole universe, because there's a bunch of different series that are all in that same universe. There's, there's several in there. Um, there was a character uh, in the Acheron series who originally I put in book in book two as a uh, nod to one of my fans, one of the readers who asked if he could use his daughter's name. And I created this character intending for her to you know, bow out at the end of the first book, but I liked her so much. She stayed on for all the rest of the series and then into another series too. So, I mean, I, I'm not as likely to have a character unexpectedly uh, do something like that. Cause I outline so closely, but yeah. you know, it happened. Yeah. Um, when, when, when you guys are creating characters, do you ever think in terms of like character archetypes? So, um, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about the, the, the wise old wizard or, you know, someone that, that plays that role, uh, as an, uh, a wise old advisor or, you know, the chosen one, or, you know, when you're kind of creating your cast of characters, are you thinking in terms of, the job that they will perform the role that they'll portray. And do you kind of cast a book in those? And uh, I don't normally think in terms of archetypes, but when I look back uh, a lot of times I can see my characters kind of fulfilling some of those roles, but I don't necessarily think of in those terms ahead of time. Um, do you guys think about that ahead of time? Like, I need someone to fill this role. Let me create a character to kind of play this part. Well, I mean, in military science fiction, especially, there are certain archetypes that are almost necessary. Like, you have the old man, quote unquote. Right. Like, in the Marines, that's usually a company commander or battalion commander, somebody who's the, you know, the father figure, the leader to the main character. Right. And, and also, there's always uh, some gruff and legendary NCO that winds up having a heart of gold. You know, it's that a certain things you have to do. So I think about in that terms. Uh, I don't typically. Um, I mean, I typically just put them in that position and try to build a character who is, you know, had a career in that position. So it. It's not really an archetype for me, but there are roles they have to fill that the I create characters for. Yeah. Uh, before I respond, I'll bring yeah. up something that I heard about Jim Butcher uh, and what he does with the Dresden Files. Um, I don't have confirmation that this is true, um, since Jim and I are not friends. Um, but uh, sorry, that's a little inside joke between me and Hank. Um, but uh, he mentioned one time that he finds out what needs to happen at the end of his book. Yeah. He writes the book and he works backward from uh, what, what enemy, what character needs to be there in the end. What, what ultimately defeats that character? How do I set up wh whether it's the magic or the, 
item or the this or that that Dresden needs to achieve the goal at the end. And he builds sort of his whole story from the back forward, um, which I, I thought was interesting and also just duh. Um, seems like the duh thing to do when you're when you're working on a long series that's first person and every uh, sort of episode has its arch villain and you need all that. Um, we did that a little bit with the Black Badge series because we heard that Jim Butcher did it and Black Badge is so similar to Dresden in the Wild West that it just made sense to kind of steal his his methods. Um, for me. The, the stories that I tend to write are so um, character focused that um, of course there's a plot, of course there's a story, but like for instance, with the Raptors series, the superhero series that Chris Valen and I write, like we're so focused on what our characters are doing and how they're developing and the fun of a superhero story that sort of by the time we get to the big bad, um, it has almost naturally developed itself through something we did. And I guess that's not a great answer that naturally it happened, but like, I sometimes feel like when you, when you write a lot, um, you know, I don't know about you, Rick, Josh, whatever. I don't know if you get to that 25% point in your book um, on purpose where there's that moment, that inciting incident, whatever it is, right? Like, I don't know that I ever go, Oh, I'm at the point where I need this to happen. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I don't do that either. You tell enough stories, you learn how to keep it interesting, and you get a, you, you get a feel for the ebb and flow of. If I'm bored, you're bored, right? And so, like right. this is for me, I go, okay, yeah, this is I'm leading up to this, and I know kind of when it's going to happen. Um, then recently, though, with Dragon Blood Assassin, uh, another I do a lot of co-writing, right? Because I own Athon, and it's hard for me to do my own writing and do that at the same time. Um, so Andy and I are writing this story and we're in book three and we had written um, close to 400,000 words before we knew who this character that we kept talking about. We created this character called Red Claw and he only exists in like letters that are written to a bunch of enemy people. And um, we, we didn't know who it was until like a month and a half ago while we were already writing book three where he's supposed to be revealed. Sounds and like an energy drink. <laughs> it does. Uh, energy drink slash uh, White Claw. Um, so we we actually had a conversation where we went, okay, who do we who have we already established that might play this villainous role well? And the answer was very clear. We knew, you know, both of us went, oh, duh, he's already there. He's done everything duplicitously in a way that works really well. It was not an uh, uh, an obvious choice. So like there were some obvious characters, and we're like, no, those are too obvious. But here's the one, and so. Um, 400,000 words in, we went, okay, here's our villain. Um, again, I don't suggest that's the way to do it, but sometimes it works out. What, what about you, Josh? Um, I forget your original question. Because I talked so long, I know. Yeah. No. Do, do you think in terms of casting oh, yeah. characters and, and having them fill particular role Were you typing to somebody on your phone josh uh, yeah i was um i n yes and no like i i know i always start with plot and then kind of work out characters around that yeah um i have in the past created um where i i knew that i wanted a uh comic relief character and so i created that character and everything they did around not not 100% around that purpose but yeah. i i made sure that they provided that element to the book um and uh i i knew that I, I yeah no shit <laughs> I, I i i knew that i needed uh characters Still that here. i thought uh, the rapture came and i was <laughs> and, yeah man Whew. Thank you, curses dude. hank uh, no, but I, I think of like almost kind of what Steve was saying about yeah. needing um, something to happen at certain points in the book. And, and um, I see I see that stuff in the outline and like I when I outline, I outline through chapters. And so I can count every chapter. And usually I average I try to average twenty five hundred words a chapter. So I know 
if I get to say like chapter 10 or 11, let's just say that's around where the inciting incident needs to happen. And so I'll develop everything before that leading up to that point. And then I'll look at the different elements of the <coughs> that are going on and say, okay, what kind of character do I need here or here? For instance, there's a character in my weaponized series that shows up in book two, um, who is the character that gave one of my main protagonists, all of her advanced, I call them peripherals, but they're basically cybernetic implants, um, like bio, bio neural uh, matrix kind of stuff in your mind and all that. Um, and so I knew that I needed a character for that. And so what I did was I, I just thought of what is a character in this landscape? They're, they're all about the tech. What are they going to do? Like what, how are they going to live? And in this case, I thought this guy wants to be an AI. He, he, he wants to be on the same level. He's tired of limitations of the biological brain, the biological, all that stuff. So I made him this like giant mechanical spider that the body of the spider holds the brain and the other biological aspects of his body and maintains it through like you know uh protein gels and all of this stuff but that's just a step like later on i'm going to take it to where he actually does figure out how to do the transference and become an actual ai but that was a really cool secondary character that's probably not going to do much else in the book um, but i created him specifically because i needed a character to give the protagonist something else and and you know a lot of times you'll have like a a character that provides a sword or a gun or whatever and and, and you don't do a whole lot with them with characters like this like i was saying before like you can do a lot of crazy things that people will look at and go huh that's really cool but then they can move on but i i like to be able to do that and it doesn't lock me into having to write a pov of someone that it doesn't have a body right that's locked into this thing and thinks in a weird way and all that stuff i can do that kind of from the outside and uh i love doing those kind of characters yeah um i i don't know who um who said this originally but well um anytime you're you're talking about characters one of the first things that that people will tell you is uh identify who your character is and uh and what your character wants what what is it that your character wants to accomplish and you know you kind of need to know that ahead of time um and I, I heard someone say one time i don't i don't know who or where but um they said take a character um make them a likable character for the reader someone that they want to root for and then stick that character in a tree and then set the tree on fire and you know and then you know now you have a story um so you know, if if we create a character that's likable and we give them a purpose and a mission, um, you have to throw things in in their way, obstacles for them to overcome. Um, how do you guys think about providing obstacles for your characters, putting things in their path that will frustrate them and, um, you know, ultimately, ultimately make them have to problem solve? Um how do you start thinking about ways to prevent your character from getting what they want? I think the biggest challenge there is, um, is doing that in a way that doesn't also make your character look like an idiot. <laughs> right. That's right. 100% fine line. A lot of times, um, it, you know, how do I make him not look stupid? How do I make him not get her, whatever, make them yeah. not get rescued all the time? Um, how do, how do we, how do we put a, paperclip and a rubber band together and create a MacGyver situation. Um, those are not easy. I mean, kudos to the freaking MacGyver writers, right? Uh, what were you going to say, Hank? Yeah. Well, and, but at the same time, uh, prevent them from becoming a Mary Sue. Anyone who can just take a rubber band and a paperclip and solve any problem. I mean, that, that's a very finished. fine line. The, the genre makes up how this works, right? In lit RPG, you don't do tension. You don't put a character in a tree. You, you, you do not, absolutely. Like all the things we learned as writers 
yeah. uh, tension his story, give him obstacles, mm-hmm. all of that. That doesn't work in the lit RPG game lit community. They do want, um, and I don't speak for everybody, and this is not a, a yeah. totally general statement, but by and large, uh, your character needs to be a Mary Sue. They want an overpowered character that metagames the entire system and doesn't make mistakes because then they look at it and go, why is he so stupid? Um, whereas, but where do you get tension from then? You, it's more it's more just about the story, the journey. Think about playing a video game on easy mode. Um, you know, that's kind of the, you build the character, you build the world, you build the magical system, which is also just like a video game style system, D&D style system. It's all about the system in Lit RPG. Yeah. So um, there's so many different like genre things that, that determine how you do this as well. But when we're talking about military sci-fi or fantasy, traditional style fantasy, that's when you throw your character in the dungeon with a million spiders and tell them to get out. I've never thrown a military sci-fi character into a dungeon with a million spiders. But- I did say fantasy also. That is when you throw your character onto a derelict ship filled with sloth-like or slug-like monsters, right? And You know, it's, it's, it's a great part about mill sci-fi is you don't have to think of new ways to screw your character over. All you have to do is look at the military and look at what's happened in wars and there's just plenty of stuff that screws people over. You know, you got incompetent officers, inexperienced people making plans, inte- faulty intelligence, uh, the enemy, you know, doing their part to make make sure your battle plan doesn't survive contact with them. Now, what happens uh, when your uh, officer, your superior officer is so incompetent and inept that the reader goes, there's no way he would have gotten that position if he's that stupid? Well, you have to make clear how he got the position in that case. And it's happened in real life, trust me. Um, it, it mostly happens when you have a peacetime military that's suddenly thrust into a war and none of them have any experience at war. Yeah. The, or they create a sweet PowerPoint presentation and impress the yeah, general. Exactly. And then the, exactly. the general's like, make that guy a commander. That's how people in peacetime get those positions by impressing people through their their by-the-book attitude. You have to make that clear that by-the-book and spit and polish, that's how you get promoted, how you get positions in peacetime. And then a war happens, and people like that are useless, and everything gets changed. And we saw this like recently in Iraq and Afghanistan. Wartime hit, everything changed. And then once it shifted back towards like an occupation and kind of halfway piece, then everything went back to buy the book, spit and polish, you know, people getting slapped on the back of the wrist for uh, things like uniform infractions and not having their weapon exactly the way the book says it should be. That that just happens naturally. So having, having officers who don't know what they're doing and battle plans that aren't based on reality and, and faulty intelligence, that's just military history. So all that stuff is good. I I, fi- I figure that all that stuff is enough of a dumpster fire without throwing too much else in. Although you do throw in like personal conflicts because those happen in the military too. Right. And uh, well, anytime you have two humans together, you're going to have personal conflicts. And so at some it's, point. I think it's even easier with military science fiction than it is with other like space opera because you don't have to think, you don't have to come up with new stuff to throw in their way i like to um so i i said the last time that i hate the easy button so i like to i like to come up with a very interesting problem and and work the character through that problem but then on top of that i throw wrenches at them constantly you know like if they need to solve problem one by going to checkpoint a and b i throw a wrench in between there and don't allow them to get to checkpoint a and then they're forced to you know redirect and do something else Uh, but also on the on the small scale like if they're having a fight um and uh, we talked uh mark graney was on the show the other day and we talked about Mm -hmm. burner and there's an uh, a fantastic opening underwater scuba fight scene in that right. book. And on top of 
trying to evade all these Russian bodyguards, uh, punty, putting uh, limpet mines on the ship and all that. He gets into a hand-to-hand um, with knives underwater, and then you've got spear guns on top of that, and then you've got all that going on. You've got the mines counting down. You've got this fight and how he's going to get away from these people, and then he cuts his oxygen. He cuts his mask, and he starts – he can't breathe. And, like, the, it just, like, when – as a writer, when you think of – yeah, I think this is everything that I can throw at that character. You're usually missing one or two other things that you can do to make it that much because you know, like fundamentally, you know that Core Gentry is going to survive this particular incident. Right. But then you're at, you get to a point while you're reading and you're like, oh yeah, this is really good. This is bad. This is bad. And then you get your air hose cut and you're like, oh, it's way worse now. It's way worse. And like, so that, like, the small increment, uh, incremental uh, escalation in danger. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be a fight scene, it could be anything, but just layering it and layering it and layering it instead of just like throwing one problem. They have to solve that problem and then they get another problem and throwing another problem and, and like stepping it, you like stack them incrementally on top of each other and do it before they fix the first problem. Like you're, it's like a stair step all the way up. Um, and I try to do that with all of my situations where I'm like, okay, this is, this is the most horrible thing that can happen right now. Um, what else can I do? And then I layer that on top. And so your characters are always, like I said, it doesn't have to be a fight, but they're always working through some level of conflict. By the way, just as a side note, uh, underwater scuba fight scene is the name of my new band. <laughs> <laughs> I it's love a it. Ska band. Well, I love it. it. Make it's a ska band. band. No. It wouldn't make much sense to have a scuba fight scene that wasn't underwater, though. Uh, yeah, you can't really have a scuba fight scene out of water. You'd look really stupid with those little yeah. flippers on and the thing in your mouth, and you're just on the dock, you know, slapping each other. <laughs> Although that would be really funny, and I'm going to yeah. try it now. <laughs> scuba fight scene in space. Oh, yeah, I like it. So, um, so the maybe the the other side of the coin from frustrating characters. Um, what about character faults? Um, you know, letting a character's humanity come out by showing that they're not perfect people. Um, but that's a that's another uh, character trait that. It, could walk a fine line because um, if a character has too many faults, they just become horrible people that no one roots for. Um, so how do you add a little humanity to a character without overplaying your hand and making them unlikable? I, um, if you don't mind, I'll go first, but um, I, I have two main character uh, uh, that I, in, in weaponized that come from completely different backgrounds. One's a spy and one's a soldier. And um, their faults, if you want to put it in that context, one is just totally used to doing his own thing and going off the rails and doesn't have any oversight. He can basically do whatever he wants. The other one is a soldier. And so they're both constrained by the way that they operate and the way that they do things. And so to each other, to the other, both of those are faults, but to themselves, that's just who they are. And so um, you can create conflict. And the way I do it in the book is, is put those two characters together. Each think the other is wrong, but they're both working towards the same end goal. And that, um, first of all, it allows you to kind of, more well-defined who that character is by how they're doing things. Um, But also you can show, and the way I'm trying to do it in weaponized is show how as they progress through the story, the two faults of each kind of blend together to create a singular fault, um, (laughs) just a singular, uh, uh, way of doing things, they kind of blend their two uh, worlds together to kind of uh, go forward. And um, but I mean, faults are are kind of 
it's a sticky uh, area to be in, right? Because you don't want to overdo it and you don't want to choose the wrong fault, right? Like it, you, you don't want to make the fault like a disability, right? You don't, right. You, yeah, you know, um, so, you know, it could be that, uh, you know, a, a guy is too honest or, or that they can't see past, uh, you know, a lot of people can't self-reflect. Um, that is a big fault that a lot of people have that they, no matter what happens or what somebody says, they're never wrong. They can always like justify and extrapolate reasons why they are correct. And they're never going to see the other side. I think that's a really good fault to write in fiction because most people can reflect and, and empathize with that. Even if they're the person that doesn't see their own faults. Right. Um, so I, I try to keep it as subtle as possible when, when, when putting faults in characters, um, I, I don't, I think you can go kind of overboard on it sometimes. It feels a bit like when you have a job interview and they're like, what's your work? I care, I care too much. Yeah. I, you I, know, care too I, much. I work too hard. I work too hard. Right. Uh, yeah. I have, I have a good friend who he's a, he's a, he's a little overweight. He would tell you that. And his well, answer, I, I am not overweight. Yeah. I am down 10 pounds. Um, his answer to this question is my favorite question. My favorite answer on earth. The interviewer said, what's your greatest fault? He said, sprinting long distances. We <laughs> 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 got the job just for that answer. Nice. Oh man. Um, Steve, I have a, a, a specific question that I want to ask you about the black badge series and, and, and that pertains to this particular question, but Rick, um, when you're writing military sci-fi does, um, what you talked about earlier, just kind of the inherent, um, uh, you know, kind of governmental ways, uh, things that factor into, the, the military structure and, and, you know, all of the, the weaknesses that are uh, exposed by that do, do, um, does, does that sort of thing play into character flaws and um, making sure characters have some humanity because we know that these systems are ultimately going to break down and fail at some point. Well, um, especially for the main character, like Josh was saying, you have to make sure that you don't overdo the flaws because people will, people like a flawed character, but they don't like a real flawed character. They don't like somebody right. who has actual character flaws like you would find in real life. They want somebody who's a hero, but with just some tiny flaw that makes them, you know, relatable. Yeah. Like, in, Re like, in, relatable, um, I think is, is the, the key term there. Like, for instance, you can get away with a character who drinks too much because of the stress they've gone through and the bad things they've seen, but you cannot get away with a character who cheats on his wife or a significant other. Right. They're not going to identify with them anymore, you know, or, or husband or significant other if it's a female. They're, they're not going to identify. They're, they're gonna, there's going to be a significant part of the readership that just turns them off right there. So, um, like in... Um, in Drop Trooper, it was easy because the main character was, you know, a street kid who grew up on his own, running cons on people, you know. He, so he didn't trust anybody. So it was easy to have a flaw that he couldn't relate to other, the other people there. He didn't trust them. He didn't want to be in a leadership position. He, he was good at fighting and he, he liked doing that, but he didn't want to lead anybody or be responsible for them. And that was the flaw he had to work on, you know, to, to trust people, to, to let other people in. But, you know, as the series goes on, and, and for a long series, this is where you have to have character growth. You have to give new flaws that crop up that weren't really obvious before. Like, uh, I don't know if you call this a flaw, but uh, several of the military characters that I have in books that have seen lots of action develop at least mild PTSD. Because you do, you know, even if even if you handle it really well and you have a great support structure, there's going to be some stress and strain that takes its toll on you after having seen the kind of combat that these people have seen. And, you know, which is kind of unrealistic, but you're following the same character through 12 books. You know, they, they see a lot more combat than a, a real person, even like a special forces soldier would, because they're the one who you see everything through their eyes. Um in the Earth at War series, the main character is a veteran who got hit bad by PTSD and nobody was 
attempting to help me, self-medicated through alcohol, lost his marriage. And it would have been easy to take that too far to make them too yeah. flawed. But, you know, you had to, you have to spend part of the first book in a case like that, bringing them back to someone that's relatable. And, uh, but yeah, I, you, you learn because I, I did write a, a series. I won't name it because there's no point in, uh, in talking about it now, but there was a series where the main character was very flawed in a realistic way and people did not like them. I don't even say it's a he or a she, but they did not like the fact that this person had realistic flaws and was self-destructive in a lot of ways. I think one of the dangers, um, especially writing a two, uh, on top of writing a two flawed character where people are not going to empathize or, or it's just kind of outlandish in that aspect or that um, consideration. I think the, the, one of the um, pitfalls of newer writers is creating flaws that then they twist to um, assist the character in solving the main problem of the book. And I think that, yes, that is an interesting way to do it. Like, um, uh, the only example that really comes to mind is, is monk from the TV show. He was OCD and, and because he was, he had that disorder, there was a lot of things that he saw and did that were different from the, the rank and file detectives. He could see that things that like the good, the good doctor, that series now with the, uh, Oh, I haven't seen that doctor. show. Okay. It's a trope, right? Autism. I can't remember what character. Was Autism it. is a superpower. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember what it was. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm not. No, no. Yeah. See, but there's nothing wrong with that. But I understand what you're saying. Like sometimes we overdo the, this is how it got fixed thing. Right. Um, right. Yep. Because you can have flaws that don't affect the plot. They affect characters, multiple things, multiple layers to a well-rounded story, character, plot, world building, all that. And your character can have a flaw that doesn't do anything for the plot, but builds his character. And, and when I, when I yeah, first started writing character arc, yeah, I mean it, it 100% there that, that just adds another layer to your story to give it more depth than, um, you know, he, he has a, I don't know. Uh, an aversion to gunpowder. And then in the last scene, he smells the gunpowder and saves everybody from getting blown up. You know, something simple like that. It, it you don't want to like constantly. That doesn't create... seem contrived at all. Jeff. No, no, it doesn't. No. <laughs> just, it was the first example that came to mind. Okay. Oh man. Uh, you see in real life, I'm uh, my flaws that I'm too handsome. And so everywhere I go, <laughs> uh, my poor wife, she's got to deal with, you know, women just, throwing themselves oogling yeah uh it's a sad day steve the yeah. I, i'm just i'm not, I'm not gonna it. touch that um i've got a shirt that i wear all the time trophy husband. that it says trophy husband on it and i tell everyone that sees they're like that's awesome i mean yes i bought it my wife did not buy it for me <laughs> i bought it for myself <laughs> and i wear it proudly well somebody had to yeah Steve, uh, in the Black Badge series, uh, James Crowley is a character that is not necessarily a likable character. Um, he's he's not a warm, fuzzy, you know, let's rally around this guy kind of character, but he does good things. Um, is that uh, yeah? How intentional was that? You know, to to make a character that. Right. Is not necessarily a likable character, but is likable through his actions. Quite. Um, from the very first 10,000 words written on Dead Acre, uh, James was, um, he was angry. He was violent. He was everything that a, an ex-outlaw um, you would assume to be. Uh, my favorite parts of the books, um, there's a scene in cold as hell where James Crowley comes across uh, some Pinkertons that had been stripped down naked, frozen and tied up. And in that moment, we get this really fun picture of James. First of all, he's, he's a dick 
in this scene, right? Uh, and as I'm listening to Roger Clark's performance of it, I'm, I, I mean, I'm getting chills, but because of how good Roger Clark performed it, but also because James, he just takes no shit in that, right? Like these guys, he, he is a badass that's gonna get what he wants out of these guys. And if they wanna get free, they're gonna answer his questions. There's no sympathy, there's no empathy, there's tell me what I wanna know and maybe I'll let you live. Um, and the challenge there, yeah, like you said, is making him likable. And one of the things that we created as a flaw, as funny as this is, because we just joked about it, my greatest weakness is being too good, too honest, too whatever. James's weaknesses are that despite the fact that he knows what the white throne wants him to do, he is going to do what he thinks is right in that moment. Um even when it completely contradicts what he's been told to do, right? Like he's got this relationship with Rosa, Rosa Massey. And, and um, although there's this weird, she's actually 20 years younger than him. He met her when she was seven or eight years old. And then he's lived undead for 20 years. Like in real terms, like James is like a 50 year old dude who's got this <clears throat> sort of sexual tension with this 21 ish, 23 ish year old woman and um, and so there's this really fine line that we have to walk there where it's not inappropriate, it's not weird. Um, although there's plenty of you know 50 year old guys married, there's Leonardo DiCaprio, you know. Um, so yeah, but he doesn't look 50. No, no, and James doesn't either. James looks like a 26 year old guy in like perpetually. That's what he True. looks. Like. And True. so um, all the flaws that we had to create with James, he can't die. <laughs> You know, all the flaws we had to create with him were were super intentional. And we create moments in those books where we get to see badass James Crowley doing what's right by being an asshole. And it's fun. One, one thing that I that I like, I've only done it a couple of times, but I like reading about it, is if you have a first person POV character who has a flaw and it's an obvious flaw, but they don't realize it's a flaw. And throughout the book, you know, they never get the idea that this is a problem. I mean, because they, they make it anyway. They make it have, work anyway. But, but people reading it, if they pay attention, could see, oh, yeah, that he's, a, he's like a huge – he's got a huge ego. You know, he, he doesn't think anybody else can, can do it. He's got to be the only one to do things. James reflects a lot in, in internal, right? In a first person, everything is internal dialogue. Right. So I tell people all the time, if you're writing in first person, you don't need italics. Although, you know, Rick has argued with me on that. And I'm okay with that. I, I get his points on that. Uh, in Drop Trooper, there's a lot of sort of internal dialogue. Um, and I, and I, Rick, I'll just say I've come to terms with what you've said. And I think that I, agree. <laughs> uh, but for me, everything that James thinks is what's written on the paper, because he's actually telling the story like he's sitting in a campfire. Um, so, he often reflects on the mistakes that he's making, acknowledging that he actually knows they're a mistake in terms of the grand scheme of things, but he's going to do it anyway, because that's what he feels like needs to happen. Even if it hurts him, even if it hurts his relationship with the white throne, he's going to do it because X, Y, Z. And, you know, I, I enjoy playing off of his um, what's it called when you're uh when you're uh, sort of his chivalry, I like oh, okay. to play off of that um, while also finding the balance in 2023 of what is acceptable as chivalry. Of course, it's takes place in 1890. So suck right. it <laughs> one of the, I think one of the, when Rick, when you mentioned that and, and, and Steve, when you're talking about how James operates and does things, um, Chris Rucchio and his sun eater series, um, the main character's name is Hadrian Marlowe. And the whole book is um, basically him writing in his journal about his life. And um, uh, he breaks the fourth wall occasionally and he'll say things like, this is where I messed up reader and you'll know what happened, but I didn't. And so I must go on with the story or, or something along those lines. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but um, the funny thing is, is that the, the narrative is so melodramatic. <clears throat> Sometimes you forget that it's first person 
and that he's telling you the story. But what's interesting about that is he is self-aware enough as a character that he knows he's melodramatic. And then the characters in the books make fun of him for being melodramatic. And that they call it like the Marlowe anger, anger or the Marlowe stare or something like that. And so he plays up that kind of fault in in being melodramatic about everything. He plays that up in the narrative. Also, when he's talking to the reader, when he's breaking the fourth wall, and also when the other characters are kind of making fun of him for it. So and and it is. 100% why I love the book so much just the 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 way that it's written in that style it wouldn't work for a lot of series but because the series is a space opera written uh in the the shape and form of an epic fantasy it can take on this over dramatic kind of melodramatic tone in the entire writing and because you know that it's him writing in his journal and because they make fun of him, you can actually laugh at how he describes a scene because you know, man, this is really melodramatic. And you're like, oh, well, that's because Hadrian is. So, of course, that's the way it's described. And it's just it's phenomenal work. Chris and I, Chris Valen and I wrote a delusional character. It was about a 5,500, 6,000 word prologue to book two of our superhero series. And it's told from the first person present tense point of view of a character named Battle Gear, who was a, a villain. And because he's telling a story, it's actually, it's first person present tense. That is also first person past tense because he's in the present telling a story about what happened while commenting on the story in present tense. It's nice. It was, it was a bit of a challenge, but it was fun. Anyway, at the end of it, his arch enemy, which is Eagle Star, which is sort of a, a Captain America Superman smash up, um, he shows up and there's this delusional experience that Battle Gear is telling the story of where he believes that Eagle Star is a fan of his, even though they're arch enemies. Like, it was Eagle Star who encouraged me to keep doing the villain or the, the villainous things because he needed me as that whatever. And as we're writing it, we're really trying to find all those opportunities to make sure the reader knows this guy is delusional. This isn't really what happened. Right. Right. Eagle Star probably showed up and kicked his ass. But like in his mind, they sat down and had this conversation about keep going, bro. You've got this. And Eagle Star doesn't talk like Eagle Star. And even now I haven't released this book yet. I'm still worried that the reader is not going to be, forgive me for saying this intelligent enough to realize that Eagle Star, or that battle gear is, is out of his mind. Right. Reminds me of mystery men, the movie mystery men where, uh, where uh, captain amazing gets them to set loose casting of Frank Frankenstein because he doesn't have anybody to fight anymore. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the, you know, that's the idea there. It's like, Battle Gear's about to give up, but Eagle Star shows up and tells him, no, you can't do that, because then what would I do? <laughs> it's, like, it's ridiculous. Well, you know, there um, there have been whole books and, and um, uh, whole um, writing courses uh, built around the idea of uh, save the cat. You know, if, if you've got a character that's not likable enough, stick a cat in a tree, have them do something heroic. So that they, that, so that the reader then can then build some sort of rapport with that character. Um, We're putting the, a lot of things in trees today, Hank. And then setting the cat on the tree on fire with the cat in it. Exactly, exactly. If you if you really want to piss readers off, set the tree on fire with. The I cat. like to do the exact opposite with the cat. I like yeah. to. Out of the I, tree? No, I, I like to. I like to present. I don't do this all the time, but I like to present characters in a positive light and like like present what they're doing in a certain light so the reader does not make the connection that what they're doing is let's just say evil right yeah. um and then when you get to another part in the book there's another piece of information that gives you context to all of the past events and then you're like oh 
oh, he was doing bad things the entire time. Uh, I, I love it's a, it's kind of a subtle twist because, you know, you're saying save the cat so you can give empathy to a bad character. I like to do the re reverse and make the reader dislike a character that they have followed and loved the entire time. One of the things I'm writing, a, I'm trying to write a fantasy series um, where the main character um i'm trying to write if you guys are familiar with world of warcraft i'm trying to create an arthas character because arthas is my favorite fictional fantasy character of all time and um so i am building this character to be righteous through all of the books he is righteous and steadfast in his faith and you follow him and you believe in what he's doing and all of this and then at some point near the end of the series, you find out he was wrong the entire time. Mm. But because he's so steadfast in that belief, he doesn't believe that he could possibly have been wrong and keeps on going and goes from the hero that everybody cheered and supported to the villain that now everyone hates. But he has remained the same throughout the entire series. That's a bit of the Torsten Unger character in our buried goddess yeah. saga. He's so he's a paladin type character and he's so righteously on the side of his God that it doesn't matter how wrong it looks to the reader. He's doing what, what upholds his, his vow to I am. And, you know, we had some people who just really hated him. Uh, why is he so stupid? They couldn't grasp the concept, right? When you've been a pastor, you can understand the concept of it. This doesn't look right, but I'm doing it anyway. For sure. Right? Yeah. Um, and so we had a, a whole arc where he was blind. As a matter of fact, an entire book where Torsten was blind. And this was from his perspective. That was the hardest flaw either Red or I have ever had to write. Um, thank God he and I were writing it together because as we would go through each other's chapters, we go, hey, you just had him see something. <laughs> right. Right. And you know, yeah, I, it's hard, man. Right. The blind character is hard. I find uh, kind of the opposite with me, what Josh does. I have a problem. I don't know if it's a problem, but a tendency to take antagonists and turn them into uh, likable, relatable characters. Because, you know, you, you, you always have the thing where everybody's the hero of their own story. I was about to say that. Yeah. And, that. And I have, I've uh, several times now taken people who start out like a series as a bad guy and turn them into like a grudging ally. I find that m a lot more interesting than just like the mustache twirling type, because all some of these people are like, especially military science fiction They're they're like politicians or military officers for the other side, but that doesn't mean they're bad. They just, you know, they have different, goals and different was kind of like uh the have um in uh weber's uh honorverse well the first like eight honorverses then they're dealing with the war with haven and all that they've you've got four raker and a couple other havenite officers that you follow and they're really really good people they are great characters but they're also good people and but they're on the other side they're the enemy and you can kind of emphasize empathize with both i really like that a lot well, in, the, in Wholesale Slaughter, which is the first series I did with Athon, um, there is the head of the opposing government to the main character starts out, you know, as kind of cocky and, and uh, irresponsible and, uh, you know, very much like, uh, you know, just kill them, you know, that kind of casual casual brutality type deal. But then as you read the books and you get into the head of one of his officers who bothers to get close to him and find out what makes him tick, you see that it's all basically an act to keep everybody else in line because if he shows weakness, they're going to, you know, he's going to be removed. And in the end, he, he winds up being reasonable and doing the right thing with a little prodding. You know, say what you will about Discovery, Star Trek Discovery. I know there's a lot of sort of negative things to say, but they did this flip-flop phenomenally well with both Lorca going from who you thought was good to, and sorry if these are spoilers, for you thought he was good to he's the evil guy. And then they did the opposite with uh, Philippa Giorgio that I thought was 
really superbly well done where she was this evil vile character that we ultimately ended up um appreciating and loving um again going back to what we talked about last time where like if you want to really get story down watch a lot of tv Mm -hmm. Uh, read books but watch a lot of tv it's condensed and it's done in such a way where you could really see what they're doing to make you like the character find a character that you hated when the series started and then loved at the end and go how did they do it okay let me just follow that right and you start to see the 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 reds unfurl or, or whatever the analogy would be well, uh, this has been a, a fascinating discussion on character. Once again, um, join us next week where we're going to delve into plot and how does character become plot and uh, all of that fun stuff. Um, four authors, eight eyes. Um, thanks for. <laughs> well, we're all wearing glasses so wouldn't it be 16 uh, <laughs> that's hilarious Dang, it was it was a good try but i hey i, I saw where you were going yep you, you going. saw because you had glasses on. that's true that's right thanks for joining us uh everyone we will uh see you again next week That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.